Binge Movies, the revolutionary force in movie reviews. It was supposed to be a simple binge like any other. Cold odd cash for the facts about five pictures from Hollywood land. The city of angels gone blue-faced first in alleyways. Drowned by their dreams and two-bit hustlers who call themselves producers. Watch the picture, do a little talking, beat the other guy with a punch. I know the racket. Pay enough for a shot in a stogie afterward and yeah, I'll do just about anything. I ain't proud of it, but lately, Dignity's been bouncing her checks. I called in a favor from an old partner. Tom is tougher than a $2 steak, and he knows the time of day without looking at the clock. Little did we know, this was the one to put us under. As someone who weightlifts, you know what you're doing. There's a lot of people that want to lift weights that don't know what they're doing. And that corner of the gym is very yes. intimidating. And so the to me, the real beauty of Tonal is that they have programs and you say, well, do you want to get lean? Do you want to build muscle? Do you, you know, like, yep. do, what do you want to do? And then they tell you what to do. They put the dots real close together and you don't have to think about like, well, I did bicep curls two days ago. Do I do them again? Do I not do them again? Like it, it tells you all of that. And, yes. and it remembers your weight and what where you were at. You know, there's no writing in notebooks to remember exactly. on this move. I did yep. this on that. Like, because my wife gets so frustrated. She'll ask me all the time, like, oh, what are you doing on this move? And I'm like, I have no idea. Like, it's just the machine does what the machine does. Like, <laughs> Total tells me. <laughs> yeah, I don't pay. I don't pay any fucking attention to it. Like, I go down. It says, do these things. I do these I do things. Them. Yeah. And then I leave. Like, I now remind I me because there's a. There's another one, but does is tonal does tonal check your form too? Does it do that as well? It does. It and and not yeah. by looking at you. It can tell by the handles. There's like sensors in the handles when you're doing stuff, and it can yeah. tell like if you've gone down for farther enough or you know like yeah, yeah right yeah. I say again, you know that's that you know I just you know spent four years and you don't want to know how much money on an Olympic lifting coach, which is not cheap, and right. or, nor should it be necessarily, but it, having all of those features. Built into one price point and a monthly subscription, uh, I think is probably the future for most people. Yeah, it takes I, all like, of the voodoo out of fitness. And there's a lot of voodoo sure, like, in fitness. Yeah, I would. I have no idea what I'm doing. Like I, I don't question it. I just go down and I, I do the things it says to do, and then that's, that's it. Now, if somebody's listening to this, Tom, they're going, "Why the hell are these guys talking about tonal so much?" It's because your time equals money. And if I don't, you told me if I didn't get a plug in for your real podcast that people listen to, you wouldn't do this. So we've done that now. I've been over. I've let you use me as the the podcasting whore that I am. Now it's time to talk about deeply racist films, most of yeah. which are probably unfunny. Uh, yeah, that's that's a fair assessment on some of the, some of these for sure. <laughs> Speaking of unfunny, let's start from the very beginning. 1975's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. Yeah, I consider this <laughs> the least funny of these. Like, Oh, and, I don't, but we'll get to it. Well, and I uh, think directed, I know what you could 
I think I know what you're going to consider the least funny, and and it's a real close call. <laughs> it's a horse race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For least funny. Uh, this film was directed by Gene Wilder, who I think is making his debut on Binge Movies, which is surprising to me. I wow. So. Okay. It was also written by Gene Wilder. It is the triumphant return of the patron saint of comedy and flavor here at Binge Movies. The one, the only, Dom DeLuise. <laughs> It's a triumphant return of Madeline Kahn, last heard in an American tale. It was released December 14th, 1975, on a budget of around $3 million, made $20 million. Normally, I would have a synopsis. I'd ask you for your synopsis. I don't know if you wrote them, but the synopsis for every single one of these movies is a parody of a murder mystery, and that's it. That is the synopsis of every single one of them. It's in particular a parody of of a lot of the film adaptations that they had gotten up until basically the 70s of, you know, the classic, you know, Mrs. Marple and Hercule Poirot and uh, uh, obviously here, uh, um, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, what's his face? Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Whatever public, whatever characters had become into the public domain somewhere in the 50s and 60s. So I love, I love the concept of this movie. I, I like the premise, right? The, I, the idea that Sherlock Holmes has a brother who is like perhaps or perhaps not smarter than him, but he sure thinks he's smarter than him. And there there's a lot of sibling rivalry like like that's a really funny concept. And after that, there's not a whole lot. And the fact that this movie made 20 million dollars, um, it, it just shows you how much people loved young Frankenstein because this comes out the year after young Frankenstein. It has three of the core cast members because you get Gene Wilder, Madeline Kahn and uh, uh, Marty Feldman. And, and so people are, it's, and, and Gene Wilder wanted Mel Brooks to direct this movie. And Mel Brooks was like, I don't want to direct things I didn't write, but if you need any help, uh, you know, just call me. And then apparently um, changed his phone number. And so, wow! Uh, no, I'm just saying, based on the results of this movie, oh. he must have changed his phone <laughs> I number. Thought he really because, did, yeah, no, uh, because this movie is so not funny. Like, and I had never seen it, and like, there's a lot of people that love this movie, and so I thought, oh wow, this is going to be a, a lost gem. It's not on streaming, so I spent yep. cold hard cash Same. on the Blu-ray, and and uh, and now it's po- possibly the fanciest coaster in my collection um that's why that tonal ad read that we did went so long because i had to get to your 15 fucking bucks back from this goddamn blu-ray i know i try to go in as cold as possible i want radio silence between me and my guest except for logistics because i don't want to know i don't want to be tipped off at all i want to be as surprised by what you say as our audience is i want my reactions to be in real time I knew things were going to be a miss for this episode when the first message I got from you was like, where the fuck can I find this thing? I just had to spend 16 bucks on it. And then I was like, well, shit, where do I? And I had to do the exact same thing. We have the exact yeah. same Blu-ray, which I will more than happily give away to any listeners of this episode. <laughs> Drop me a message. Heather, if you want a copy on Blu-ray, I'll give it to you. Fair warning, though, if you miss and long for the days of film, might I suggest this transfer on the Blu-ray you and I likely have? 
which seems to have received only the bare minimum of restoration. To say that this is, this is borderline, it's not quite VHS quality, but if it's 1080p, I'm eight feet tall. It is, (laughs) this movie looks like shit. Yeah, honestly, I didn't even pay that much of attention to it. I was, it like, I was so, it's so weird. Like, it's just, you know, it's, it's a prime example of when somebody's red hot and they don't want to rein them in. They just, and and I think that's what was going on here is that Gene Wilder, there's so much weird stuff in this movie, like the kangaroo hop song and that, that they, they must've thought they had something, man. Cause then. They they do it twice. Yes. They like circle back around and end the movie with this kangaroo hop song, this weird I don't is this an original song? It sounds like something that would have been from vaudeville. I don't know if it's like I one of think those it's original. That, I think I think Wilder yeah. wrote it. Yeah. And it sounds very like like vaudeville era. Yes. But uh but I also know in this in the seventies you had this kind of in the late sixties, early seventies, you had this kind of resurgence of like the vaudeville type songs like Beatles have a couple monkeys got one and, and, and where it's kind of replicating that, that sound. But, uh, well, nostalgia tends to run in about 30 year loops. So whatever yeah. point in history you are, go back 30 years. And that's what, that's what either is yeah. making a resurgence within youth culture, which is why every kid looks like a mom from 1992 now, yeah. or yeah. people of that who grew up in that era now have come of age and they're, reminiscing of things so it makes perfect sense that in the 60s people who are either coming of age or the youth culture are looking back on their parents youth it's it's it's, it's, honestly it's what back to the future tapped into by the time you're yeah an older teenager to in your early 20s the the shit that was popular or whatever from your parents starts to make a comeback that's why like the 80s were obsessed with the 50s Right. The 90s, right. we all dress like it was the fucking 70s. It's either 20, 25, 30 years, somewhere in there. And yeah, always, the, you know, it's weird. It's, it's weird looking back now at something like American Graffiti because it's like it wasn't far enough in the past to have yeah. that sort of tinged to it. But well, even these movies are, are kind of like that. They're hearkening back mm-hmm. to, you know, 20, 30 years before here of the, some of the early adaptations of the, sh- the, 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 the mystery novels that, you know, and Agatha right. Christie or Sherlock Holmes or whoever, you know, and, but they're a spoof and they're a parody and they're taking the piss out of it. Did you laugh at all during this movie? Because I don't think I got more than maybe two chuckles light. Like, okay, that's because I, I, I get it. Right. Sherlock Holmes, there's Mycroft Holmes, who's his actual brother who he doesn't get along with. And then the idea here for this film is that there's a third brother that you've never even heard about. It's yeah. not Mycroft. It's this other guy. And he might actually, he's got his own detective agency. <laughs> and Sherlock basically like has pity on him, but also is using him as a, a diversion while he right. goes off and solves some other p- part of the crime. And, and- so... I think his name is like what Sigerson or something like that. Yes, and th- yes. And that's yeah. that is an alias that Sherlock Holmes uses at various points in his novels. So yeah, or his right. books, what whatever they were. But uh, but, but yeah, like, I that, really don't. It doesn't have anything to say. No, I don't remember laughing at all. Like I feel like I probably <laughs> laughed once or twice, but like 
I, but yeah, I like this was painful to watch. Like I, I well, like, it, your summary is like, well, it's like, well, maybe he's smarter. Maybe he's not. I think for this movie to work, he's either has to be genuinely dumber than Sherlock Holmes or genuinely smarter than Sherlock Holmes. The laugh right. either has to come because he has every right to be pissed off because Sherlock gets all the press and he's the actual genius in the family. Yeah. Or he thinks he's a genius and he's actually an idiot. And here he does some stupid stuff and, you know, he's like a weird inventor and there's weird stuff of that. And he's like, okay, but so you're, he's kind of intelligent, but he's also kind of a dunce. And because it picks right. this, like, neither fish nor foul approach to Wilder's character, none of the bits really land because they're the, the, this is, sounds really weird for comedy, but the character isn't fleshed out. The, right. the entire yeah, movie like, is the title, like you said. Beyond that, there's right. nothing. It's like they didn't, they didn't write anything else. That's it. For sure. Like, you know, like a good uh, example. Uh, of this working would be um, uh, the Pink Panther movies, right? Like you, Bingo. Inspector yep. Inspector Clouseau is an idiot, but somehow he still manages to solve the case by accident. And so, like, and and that's where the humor derives. Yeah. And in this one, like, I really couldn't figure out if he was supposed to be smarter or not. Like, it's no, because some like, stuff said, he. Yeah, he, he's actually just figuring out like a normal detective would. And you're like, well, what's right. the joke there? Why is that funny? Yeah, it's yeah. It, like I said, this was painful. It was just it was just like it, it must. It was just loud. You know what I mean? Well, like, it was that's, like, that's the other note that I have. I was shrieking and tedious because yeah. Wilder had this thing and it, he did it. He leaned mostly on it in all of his lesser comedies of the 80s. And nobody has any nostalgia for that. No, like. He right. made a lot of really shit comedies in the 80s and Haunted even going into the early Hanky 90s. Panky. Yeah, yeah, big fucking flops. Big flops. They weren't well received at the time. They have no cultural legacy whatsoever. And if you watch that, he does a lot of flummoxed shrieking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, to me, is never Gene Wilder at his best. When he, with those yeah. big blue eyes and the receding curly hairline and kind of the big moon face when he's doing a more subtle more gentle comedy and then has moments of madness and moments of shrieking or moments of going over the top or losing his temper that can be funny young frankenstein's example of that and there's mm -hmm. other movies here he every character is just screaming constantly and that's what's supposed it's to be funny is we're so manic and it's like nothing right. is, this is brutal brutal film. it's what i call uh michael bolton syndrome right mm. like uh like michael bolton is a good singer right i'm not gonna mm. take that away from him yeah but he's right he's but if you listen to his version of sit, sitting on the dock of the bay and the otis redding version of sitting on the dock of the bay um otis redding he starts small and by the mm. end like right it's just you know where where when michael bolton does it Yep. It it starts at a 10 and there's nowhere for it to go. And yeah. so like he's he doesn't there's no there's no nuance or modulation there. And so yes, he's technically a good singer, but there's also a a perform an acting performance aspect to a song that there needs to be a build and and Gene Wilder like 
because that stuff gets a big laugh and like the producers or young Frankenstein, he just thinks, well, I'll just do nothing but that and that'll work. And it's like, but it's, it's flavor. Nobody wants yes. to eat a spoonful of Lowry seasoning salt. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly right. When it's peppered in, I have to strain the metaphor too far. It's the contrast. It's the contrast right. of he's playing these. It, what he, he plays it straight. He plays those characters, even though he, they're absurd, in the midst of absurd situations, he plays, in, he, he plays it straight, even when he's saying absurd things. His, the gift of his comedy is he could play it perfectly straight and with like this heart and with this empathy and with this pathos that you believed in, so that when he does, all of a sudden there is that bolt or that flash of madness or something, or anger or rage right. or wackiness, it contrasts against what he's doing and therefore it's funny and it gets the big laugh, but you've been laughing the whole time. You, you know, like you said, it's, it modulates, you've been chuckling along with him and then you get the big laugh and then you work your way back down. And here it's just like, he's at a 10 and there are no jokes in this movie. And yeah. the stuff that is like the bits that are set up to be funny are not funny. Um, no. you know, it's an ugly talks- movie, stupid. Yeah. Badly I written. An inter- sucks. I remember, I remember seeing an interview with Hitchcock and, and where he talks about, you know, how to construct a scene. And he's like, you know, he goes, if, if you know, you put a bomb under yep. a table of two people talking and yep. then like, and you, you cut back and forth and now people are waiting for that bomb to explode. And, and comedy's a lot like that. Right. And if, if he, it, you know, the bomb in this scenario, uh, not counting the film, uh, <laughs> the bomb in this scenario is is hit is hit these large re- manic reactions that he has and and it's like a lot of times the humor is knowing you know it's coming and you're waiting for it and you laugh as much waiting for this thing to happen as you yeah. do you know and and that's where suspense comes from the suspense isn't in the bomb exploding the suspense is in waiting for the bomb to explode yep. And then the bomb explodes and that's the release of the, of the tension. And, and yeah, he's, he's all bomb exploding. So as somebody who was at least semi alive, although you were in an iron <laughs> lung at the time, uh, during this time period, can I ask a question of you? You, you're like a film archeologist for me. I want you to contextualize <laughs> things for me, uh, okay. as a, as a ignorant young film person, um, was Bernadette Peters, the Kirkland's best Madeline Kahn? I mean, I, I think that, and, and then I guess, uh, I guess then that makes, uh, if she's the Kirkland's best Madeline Kahn, then I guess that means Carol Kane is the Walmart brand. Uh, <laughs> the great value. Right. The great value. There we go. I, uh, um, yeah, but I, I think there's, I mean, it's a, that's a little harsh cause obviously she's a Broadway legend, but, uh, but. If I were going to rank them, I think that's the order I would, I would stack them in. So you, yeah, you start with the late great Malin Khan, and then who was gone too soon, and then you do a derivation of that. You get to Bernadette Peters. And it's like, well, it's kind of the same, but it's a little uh, yeah. flavor's a little off, but it's kind of the same. And then you get to the great value of Carol King, where it's like it's real quirky, but it's trying to be. <laughs> yeah, something's sure. a little off in the recipe here. Something. Yeah, <laughs> something's a little, little nutty. <laughs> um, I don't have anything else to say about this movie other than 
I really did not enjoy this at all. And I'm not joking. Yeah. I will gladly, I have no room for this film in my library. It's nothing <laughs> I'm going to revisit. I don't have more physical space for this kind of stuff. And I will gladly send it to, I'll send it to you, Tom. You can have two copies if you want. I, I don't need two copies. <laughs> yeah. I'm only What's keeping amazing it to because- me is that this has no legacy. I mean, it wasn't no. really a box office bomb. It was panned by critics, but yeah. it, it obviously, yes, it rode the success of, of young Frankenstein. A bunch of people probably saw it, probably didn't really care for it. Although I know, like you said, it is revered by some people. And then it just disappeared from the cultural landscape. It just does not. Yeah. This has no meaning whatsoever to anybody other than a select few people. And if Heather, if you're one of those people, I apologize. If you're, if you did it because you just want to torture me, then I'm very upset because I missed your comment. What did I do? <laughs> <laughs> it's coming at number four. I know you said this is the worst of the week for you. It's not. And we'll get into it. Um, I give it a 3.5 out of 10. I, I was a miserable experience. <laughs> I hated it. Yeah. I honestly, I was thinking like a two. Yeah. And, that's and fair. The, and the only reason I went that high is I like it, it, you know, it is fun to watch these people work, even if I'm not liking what they're doing. Like, it's just, you know, it's, there aren't very many opportunities to see them performing things I haven't seen. So I yeah, did get yep. some enjoyment from that, but, uh, but yeah, and, and I think, I think it's the least funny. Like I, I think I'm fair, fairly confident what you have last and, yes. and you're, and it's, it's fair, but <laughs> I, I think that, that I laugh based on laughs. Yeah. I laughed the least at this movie. Fair enough. And now you know why you never saw these performances, Tom, even though this, yeah. this was, you've seen all of these movies. You're like, well, I, oh, fuck, I never saw this movie. Now you know yeah. why. And maybe you wish you hadn't seen their performances because. This thing is a turkey. Remember when you might remember this back in the day when Siskel and Ebert would bring a real life skunk out onto the set. And I, <laughs> yeah. I think it was like the skunk was like flower or something. They, I forget the name of the skunk, but they, they did it whenever there was a, they were reviewing a stinker and they'd be like this week's yeah. stinker. And they would have this real life skunk. Looks like we have another visitor in the set. Yes. Uh, and he's sacked out already. Aroma, the educated skunk, because it's four sequels today four lousy movies. Can you believe the show is only starting and already we know that we don't like all four of these movies? Roger, if we didn't know in advance that we wouldn't like these movies, we would be from different planets. You know, it's funny. There's no way Porky's 3 is going to be good. No way. Can't happen. I walked in hoping it would be good. I walk in hoping every movie is going to be good. And I walked in knowing it was going to be You're lousy. telling me that there was no hope when I walked into that theater? Gee, that's funny. That's how I felt. Uh, that is, if I could manifest a skunk into your house right now, I would. <laughs> <laughs> because this movie stinks. Uh, moving on yep, to another yeah. movie that, God damn, the amount of talent. You'll hear it when we get into it. And what almost could have been. But I've got issues with this movie, and we'll, we'll get into them. I'm talking about 1976's Murder by Death. It currently has only a 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. Murder by Death was directed by Robert Moore. It is written by Neil Simon, whose name's going to show up quite a bit in this episode, is the triumphal return of Peter Falk, last in Princess Bride, who we both love. The triumphal return of Alec Guinness, Sir Alec Guinness, last seen in Return of the Jedi, is the triumphal return of Peter Sellers, last seen in Doctor Strangelove, is the triumphal return of Maggie Smith, last seen in Clash of the Titans, Dame Maggie Smith. This film was released 623 76 
On a budget of not available, it made $32,511,047. One of the best lines in this movie, Tom, is when (laughs) they talk about the pornographic Bible scandal at the Catholic Church, and they wanted to solve the crime, but that would mean that the church would have to turn the the porno Bibles in, and they refused. Yeah. There are funny lines in this movie. There are Um, so many funny ideas and funny lines. And I know that it's offensive. And I know that people would call it ableist. But Alec Guinness playing a blind butler and some of the gags with him as the blind butler are genuinely funny. And this is the closest movie, I think, on our list that is almost like the first draft of what Clue could have been. And, and what yeah. Clue ends up being. So I understand why people love this movie. I understand why people like this movie. There are real, there's some funny shit in here. The problem with the film, there's a couple of problems. Yeah. But Well, just go into it. <laughs> you, you, it's really racist. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> It's really, really racist. Like, there's just no way to sugarcoat it. And, and, uh, I, like, there are, there are some funny lines, but to me, the movie didn't hold together. This is honestly, even though there are some funny moments, I think this is probably, uh, just reviewing it, looking again. Yeah, I think this is probably like my second least favorite film of this. Like, this is the one that, that I have at number four. Like, okay. So we have, to me, we have two issues with this movie. So for those that aren't familiar with it, the idea is this is actually of all of these movies, this is the biggest spoof spoof where it is. Yeah. We're, we're bringing in all of these tropes from you've got great concept. Basically every character, all the world's greatest detectives are gathered into a mansion and they're all, uh, have to solve a crime or whatever. And so you've yeah. got Perot or an equivalent. You've got Miss Marple, a uh, parody equivalent. You've got Nick and Nora Charles, parody equivalent. You've got a Sam Spade, who's Peter Falk equivalent. Probably the best part of the movie is the Sam Spade stuff. Which is why you get one of the other movies on this list. Correct. <laughs> yeah. And then we get the Charlie Chan. And the Charlie Chan character, for people who don't know, uh, is a series of novels written by not an Asian person, depicting an Asian person, Chinese person, who's a crime solver. And there's great debate for scholars and people to this day was, it's a racist character now, but was it an empowering character then? Because you had essentially a second-class citizen being shown as a capable genius solving crimes, et cetera, et cetera. However, when it got translated to radio and television and film, it was white guys doing yellow face with tape right. on their eyes, doing broad over the top accents uh, uh, of yeah. you know malapropisms, and they they took this character that maybe had some racial stuff in it, and they turned it into a, a big joke almost. And the problem with this is, Sellers doing it is racist in and of itself, but on top of that. The, the part of the bit is he's adopted a Japanese son. The Japanese son speaks perfect English and is just like basically a modern person in this movie. And the, yeah. you can tell that that's part of the joke is that, oh, look at this guy's over-the-top accent. And then a real Asian person 
speaks the way real Asian people do, which is normally, right? Right. Um, but they never go far enough with it to where his depiction of the Charlie Chan parody character feels like it's mocking the Charlie Chan character. That's what it needs to be. If you're like, if you're going to do it, which I still don't think you should, but if you're going to do it, it almost has to be like a Tropic Thunder situation. And the scene everybody forgets in Tropic Thunder is the other guy, the rap star who's in the movie. They're talking about uh, what's his face being Robert Downey Jr. being cast and how he's like a blonde, blue-eyed Australian who undergoes experimental surgery to have his skin dyed to play a black character. And everybody's like, "Oh, it's method acting, method acting." The real heart of that bit is Hollywood would rather dye a white guy's skin black than cast an actual black guy. That's the joke, right? Yeah, to the point where the guy says, "He's like, well, there's nobody else right for the role," and, and the guy's in the background of the scene. And he goes, right. "I'm black." I'm right here. Cast right. me. <laughs> the joke is Hollywood is racist. That's yeah. the joke. It's not a racist joke. It's a joke at the expense of the racism, systemic racism of Hollywood. You could have done an equivalent thing here where you're making fun of the horribly racist caricature of Charlie Chan. You're not. The jokes are, it's, you're almost tripling down on the worst parts right. of Charlie Chan movies. Where the joke yeah, is, it, it, he's just got cookie, co- you know, fortune cookie sayings, and it's like it's 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 horrible, Tom. It's horrible. It is. It is. It's it's jarring, and I think you know you you know this movie's from what seventy six. Yes. And, and uh, um, it seems it, too late also, to be doing this, even in seventy six. Though this seems so. There was this period of time where you know no one would. Nece- would necessarily touch blackface but they didn't even think about there being a problem with a white person playing an asian person like, yeah. they didn't even give it a second thought and so it's a real blind spot for the era also keep in mind this is written by neil simon so yes it's written in the 70s but you're talking about a guy who was cutting his teeth in the 50s and 60s yeah and so like he's you know he's definitely from a different era even though he was certainly a a juggernaut of of a writer in in this time frame he he is not only is this a bygone era but he's he's from a bygone era as as well and so you know i i just think it's a real blind spot that they didn't even realize how bad this played and at the time it probably didn't play bad at all but um, but I will say that Peter Sellers uh, like was not a fan of this movie. I think he w- had a cut of it, and he actually, before it came out, sold it back because he didn't think this movie was going to be a success, and and uh, which was probably a mistake because I mean, thirty two million dollars not adjusted for inflation is a pretty good box office return yeah. on a movie like this. So, um, well, here's but it, it, here's the problem with the movie, right? Like to, to get in, uh, to go even deeper on the Sellers stuff. If there's anybody who could have pulled off a darkly satirical takedown of some aspect of Hollywood for within a comedy context, at this time, it's Peter Sellers. Sellers was as intelligent enough and as capable of a performer to be able to do the subtlety of, we know, it's a knowing joke. We know we're putting the white guy as the Asian character because we're making fun of every time Hollywood has done this and we're 
we're mocking the stereotype. Sellers is a guy think, who could have pulled that off. I don't think he saw it either. I think that he had the same blind spot. Don't forget, he did brownface in a movie called The Party. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, so it's like I I think he looked at it. I think if you if you sat him down and said, "Hey, this is what you're doing," I think he just said, "This is what comedians do," and they've been doing it for for ages, and it's how it is. I I don't think, you know. I think he would have said, well, then what's the difference between me putting on a French accent? You know, like I do characters. That's what I do. I, I So you're uh, right. Well, that would have been a funny movie. I don't think he it was even in his consciousness to see it through that prism. So that's problem number one. And that's enough to knock this movie way, way, way down. Problem yeah. number two is um, it runs out of gas. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it is. It is. If you if you take the racist shit out of it, which is a big part of it, unfortunately, that's a big chunk. But if yeah. you took that out of it, you have essentially, I think, probably what could be a pretty funny forty five minute bit. Yeah, an extended sketch on the Carol Burnett show. Yes, because yeah. the idea of bringing all of these characters together, even though they're spoof versions of it, the idea of them all having to sur- basically solve their own mysteries their own deaths potentially <laughs> before they yeah. die i missed solve a death before it happens kind of a thing and then all the twists and turns and basically every twist and turn is taking the piss out of all of these tropes and conventions of the story and down to the very ending the ending's basically like mocking where mystery novels had gotten to this point of how absurd the endings and conclusions were and yada 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 yeah um and it, it could have been funny because there are funny lines, there are funny performances, there are funny performers, there are funny bits. It just goes on way too long. And literally, the, at a certain point, whatever laughs you can get out of this, just stop. Yeah. And the movie just keeps going for almost double the runtime. And you're like, holy fuck. <laughs> this thing is yeah. still going. In the positive column, by far the best performance in this movie is peter falk yeah i mean peter falk's always fun and i love him in the in the cheap detective and uh and yeah like he's he's great i wish i wish he'd got to do this kind of role more when he walks in and he starts saying really crass off the wall stuff as essentially sam spade yeah and she says Please forgive Sam. He was shot in the head last week. (laughs) And again, it's the moments where absurdity is being positioned straightforward. Right. Like the the, the jokes about Miss Marple's mom or maid farting at the table. Not funny to me. Yeah. Like that's just okay. Well, she's old. She's in a wheelchair. So that's the joke. That's not funny. It's too broad. But when they... But the Sam Spade stuff, I think why that hits, and even some of the Alec Guinness stuff, is Alec Guinness is, is, is as much as you can, is playing a blind, he's not playing a parody of a blind butler, he's playing a blind butler who is, happens to be in, a, in an absurd situation, which is why I think some yeah. of his stuff lands, and Peter Falk is playing slightly elevated Sam Spade type character, but he also has that comedy partner with him where she's playing it completely straight as the secretary whoever's who is in love with 
this guy, right? And yeah. which is also a trope. And but she's playing it straight, but she's saying absurd shit. And that's when the movie is like, this is really funny. And that's few and far between. And then as the movie goes on, it just gets broader and broader and meaner and dumber and uglier and somehow more racist. So Yeah. You know, it was on the set of this it was on the set of this movie that Alec Guinness received the screenplay for Star Wars. Which I know he said he read it and he hated it and he only agreed to do it because they gave him a bunch of points on the back end, which essentially set him up and his children's children for the rest of his life. Um, yeah. And even after the movie came out, if you watch interviews of him, he's basically like, this is really stupid. Uh, I'm talking to a dog and this is not a, I didn't understand all he of He hated that that's what he gets remembered yes. for after his, his illustrious career. Yeah. But here's and the you thing, know, by the this thing point we... in his illustrious career, Tom, he's doing murder by death. Sure. Although, you know, in fairness, murder by death, like Neil Simon is a hot commodity. He's yes. uh, the darling of Broadway. He has a major run. It, you know, he had a lot of hit movies in, in the 70s. So this is not by any stretch of the imagination a, a bottom feeding project to be a part of. I mean, yes, it's silly, but, you know, it's big name actors choosing to be silly um with with an a-list writer so it, i don't really look at this as is being lesser than in terms of signing on to a project like this you know and another thing i wanted to point out was the opening the title credit sequence uh is done by charles adams creator of the adams family oh well look at that we would be remiss yeah. if we didn't know that the central figure of the mystery antagonist slash whatever you want to say of this whole thing is played by Truman Capote. Real, the real, felt, not somebody yeah. being Truman Capote. No, the real living Truman Capote. Who in his film debut? He's making his film debut, and even that's kind of a meta joke because he is often regarded as essentially one of the first true crime novelists. With uh, right. what in cold blood and in cold uh, blood, yeah. And uh, so the idea of having a true crime novelist being mad at fictional crime novelists because of all of their dumb tropes and leaps of logic, all this sort of stuff, and have him be the villain trying to expose all of, all of the stupidity of you know, crime novels is kind of funny. The stuff that they have him do, though, a lot of it feels like it's out of nothing but trouble. It feels, yeah. <laughs> it feels the yeah. Dan Aykroyd movie. It's like mechanical chairs and... It's Scooby Doo yeah. shit. That's what it feels like. It feels like yeah. Scooby Doo, and it's not funny. Yeah, it, not not at all. Other than me going, "That's Truman Capote," and kind of giggling to myself after that, he's kind of wasted. Yeah, and his name is Lionel Twain. Get it? Because he has he can't say his R, so Lionel Train. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and he's very and and that's where it gets real racist because he's constantly going in on the Peter Sellers character of like, it's this, you idiot. It's this, right. you know, and it's because he's got this stereotypical, I don't even want to do it because I'd probably get canceled. It's, no, please don't. But yeah, but the stereotypical Asian accents. Yeah, it's fucking terrible. Flipped and, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, this is my worst of the week. I hated this movie <laughs> because of those things. I at least laughed a few times. Like, like there at the not at the non-racist stuff, there are some funny moments. And so Th I will say, that's what makes this, I, this I, one hard. Right. It, it, yeah. And, and I figured this was your worst and yeah. it would have been my worst. It was my worst until I saw Sherlock Holmes, smarter brother. And then I was like, I did not laugh at all. So like this movie is deeply problematic. 
And you certainly have to watch it through a historical lens if you want to enjoy it at all. But there were at least moments where I laughed. But, the other uh, problem with this one, though, is because of the runtime and because this one really runs out of gas after a certain point, it's not even like some movies are worth it. Some movies are worth the work to go back and go put it in its context, not make excuses for it. We're not saying it's good. Right. We're not saying give it a pass. But there's others, the, there's the, the worth of it outweighs the, yeah. the racism or homophobia right. or whatever, right? Whatever is objectionable about the content, that's minimal compared to all this other great stuff. Right. Or, or context has shifted, and it, this was actually, at the time, a progressive movie, which now looks regressive because 40 years have right. passed or 60 years. That happened. For sure. And so, yeah, that go. Philadelphia. Tom Hanks was just talking about that the other day. Right. Uh, he wouldn't Bingo. be cast in that, and, and he shouldn't be yes. cast in that if that movie was made today. But if there hadn't been that movie, we wouldn't have got to where we're at now. Exactly. So some yeah. things are worth doing the intellectual work. I don't know that this yeah. one is because after a certain point, yeah. it's just not good anymore. <laughs> it's it's not. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a pro it's a it's a very at times very funny prolonged sketch that they put into feature length and never should have been. Moving on to a movie that was reviled at its time, hated by critics, and I don't really understand why, completely at the very least. I'm talking about 1978's The Cheap Detective, which only has a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. This, again, was directed by Robert Moore. Again, written by Neil Simon. Again, Dom DeLuise. <laughs> it's the triumphal return of Scatman Carruthers, last seen in The Shining. It is the triumphal return of Paul Williams, last seen in The Muppet Movie. <laughs> On a budget of not available, it made a box office of $28.2 million. Had you seen this before? Did you see this in theaters? Were you involved in the production? What's your history with this film? <laughs> I, I think I saw this when I was a small child. It was on TV. You know, it was a Saturday afternoon yeah. staple. Um, I didn't really remember much of it. Uh, and so I had, luckily, most of these I had bought on Vudu over the years when they were on sale, like figuring I'll get to them eventually. So I bought it for like five bucks. And, uh, um, and, I think this is the second strongest movie on the list. This is what I have at number two. Me too. I, I uh, agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Like I think um, it gets rid of almost all the problematic stuff that you saw in, in, in murder by death. Yes. It, it, it really benefits by focusing on one genre to parody. Yes. Um, and, and, and it really doubles down on that. And Peter Falk is great. Yes. Uh, and and he to me he was the highlight of Murder by Death, so it made total sense that if rather than making a true sequel, they just went back. And I was a little bummed that they didn't just make him the same character, but he's the same character. Oh yeah, right? exactly. Who, who are we getting? You're the first person who's shown me any kindness since I arrived in San Francisco. And when was that, Mrs. Mendeley, Denise Mendeley, two days ago from Shanghai. Um, may I have my things, please? You're not a U.S. citizen? I spend a great deal of my time abroad. Uh, actually, I I travel under a Danish passport. The signature's been tampered with. Your name isn't Denise Mandley, is it? No. It's Wanda Coleman. Then why did your driver's license say Gilda Dabney? I believe my life is in danger. That's why I've taken so many precautions. 
My real name is Chloe Lamar. Well, thank you, Miss Lamar. I appreciate your honesty. Now, can you tell me why you let yourself in with this pass key to search my office? What is it that you were looking for? <laughs> to be perfectly frank, your bathroom. I don't have any. Yes, I found that out a little too late. All right, can we stop playing games now? It isn't Mandalay or Coleman or Daphne or even Lamar, is it? The initials on this handkerchief are AP. What does AP stand for? Armour Chalmers. Chalmers begins with a C. This is a P. Palmers. Armour Palmers. Listen, you give me the runaround one more time and I'm going to slap you around this office. I don't care what your name is anymore. Just make one up so I know what to call you. Vivian Purcell. That's better. Carmen Montenegro. That's my last one, I promise. Yeah, I, this is a winner. Like, I don't get why this... The only thing I can think is that by 78, this type of humor felt a million years old. Yeah, right? I, I think that's by part seven, of it, for sure. By yeah. 78, you've had, you've, you've solidified SNL as a brand. You've, you know, those, those performers are starting to migrate to feature films. So you've, you know, you've, you've had Animal House, um, which obviously just revolutionized film comedy. Um, and I think once Animal House hit, everybody was looking for the next Animal House. And this sort of stuff, I mean, it was really film cinema wanted their comedy to be SNL. And this was your show of shows like and and so now removed from the era, I think it's a little bit easier to just give to reframe the prism you're seeing it through where if you're seeing this for the first time in 78 and you're and what looks like comedy now is is Chevy Chase and John Belushi and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. This feels like something that your grandparents would like. This is old hat and it's old yeah. hat that is parodying essentially Humphrey Bogart, who even by 78 was old hat. And when you have old hat, you have one of two things. One, it's not in touch with youth culture. So right though. Yeah. There's this youth revolution that's happening within comedy and comedy television and comedy film. And it's a lot more, it's just a completely different, like you said, brand of insensibilities comedically. The other thing is, for all the older critics, um, the Bogart stuff was sacrosanct at that point. It was yeah. unassailable. You can't touch it. This is, what, this is what real Hollywood is. And some of that mentality still exists today. Um, right. Because this movie is, it is a film noir parody. And we're going to get to another one. It is a film noir mystery parody. But it is a Humphrey Bogart takedown. And it is a takedown of Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon. And most of the Maltese Falcon. And I think when the movie is more or less the Maltese Falcon, it works more. I think when, the, when we get in that middle section where we're just, we're not even really parodying Casablanca. We're just sort of repeating it mm. as the bar scene. And, and it's, it's Scatman Carruthers. And that's the behind the piano. And that's the joke is it's Scatman Carruthers. And a lot of the dialogue is, if not the same, very yeah. similar. It does. It feels like they don't have any jokes there for Casablanca. And Bugs Bunny made fun of Casablanca forty years previous to this, or thirty <laughs> right. years previous to this, and found a lot of things to make fun of Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca about. So I don't know why this movie couldn't, or maybe Bugs had already just gotten all the best jokes. But yeah, <laughs> that's where the movie kind of runs out of steam. Then it picks up again. I think the first act is incredibly strong. I think the third act is, is pretty strong. It sags in the middle. It's a very, I think it is a, it's a very, very funny film. 
it's bringing back a lot of the principal performers for Murder by Death. Yeah. Um, which just shows you that a, a script and a lack of racism <laughs> goes a long way. <laughs> um, that it does. The movie that made they made the smart decision that almost no other movie on this list so far has made. And that is they made it look like a film noir movie. Yes. It doesn't look like a TV sketch. It doesn't look like shows or SNL. It doesn't look like it was filmed in flimsy sets. It, the, this movie looks great. It does. When this movie opens, it it is cinematic. It, the lighting, they nailed the aesthetic perfectly. You know, and ironically, uh, we talk about scat, Scatman Crothers playing the Sam character, the piano player yeah. from Casablanca. He plays that character later. He there's a TV show that they attempted in '83 of Casablanca. Was um, it called Nick's star- Place or something like that? It was called Casablanca, and it starred uh, David Soul oh, and Ray Liotta was in it, and Scatman Crothers played the the Sam role in that TV show. It lasted like. 15 episodes or something like that. Someday, if you love the movie, don't miss the hot new series, Casablanca. The intrigue, the adventure, the romance. One word says it all, Casablanca. Do you have it on Blu-ray? <laughs> I don't. I missed it when it came out on DVD, and I think now it goes for like 200 bucks on DVD or something, because it's like, it, it's, it's a curio. just this weird little, it, yeah, totally. It's a total curio. It's just like, that's <laughs> such a weird thing. Really, but it wasn't a- the first casablanca was wasn't there a show called like nick's place or something well originally i think they were gonna place they were gonna sorry they were i think originally they were gonna call casablanca everybody goes to rick's or everybody comes to rick's Uh, um, your brain is full of seemingly nothing but television movie curiosities (laughs) there's a lot of weird stuff out there there was uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in your brain tom is what i'm getting your brain there was a buddy in the early 80s, they actually did a, a mini series for From Here to Eternity. Like, but you can't Jesus imagine that they would do Christ. that again. But they, but they starred like Don Johnson. And I mean, it was a big prestige thing. I thought you were going to say Don Knotts. I wanted Don Knotts no, from here to Eternity. I'm, <laughs> I'm there for that. But uh, it's on YouTube. But it's, at best I can tell, it's never been released on DVD or anything. I just recently read From Here to Eternity. So I went down that rabbit hole and I was just like, there's a what? And. <laughs> And it's like a six-hour miniseries. Jesus. And it's, I mean, it was a big-budget prestige thing. And from what I've read, it, it's more faithful to the book than the film is. Although the book the book had a surprising amount of gay sex in it. What's a not surprising amount of gay sex? I guess none. Uh, <laughs> it was... Especially because this book is written in 19, I think, 50, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the guy who wrote it, uh, James Jones, I think his name is, it, like, he had been at Pearl Harbor, right? And yeah. so he was in the military. He also wrote The Thin Red Line. And uh, he, uh, so he lived this, right? And, like, the whole thing, like, when they would talk about these soldiers going out and leave, he'd be like, well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to go to a bar and try to get laid. And if you can't get laid, then you'll go to a whorehouse. And if you can't get whorehouse, if you don't have the money to go to a whorehouse, well, you might as well find a gay guy and get your dicks up. Like it wasn't <laughs> even like it, 
it it was like just like that was just a hierarchy like it wasn't like oh i mean but that's not gay that's just you didn't have the money for a hooker and oh so, so it's it's like down low gay sex is what you're really talking about yeah, yeah. and so but yeah. then it was like but then they would frown upon the guys that did it too much because then they're like well that's not because you don't have the money that's because you really like it it's only okay to have gay sex if it's <laughs> if it's your backup plan right like there's a there's a certain amount of gay sex you can have and right. you're not gay but right. if you have a little like too you, much gay sex now right. you're gay and that's a problem you get like three guy <laughs> blowjobs a year and yeah that right fourth no one, questions asked it, yeah fourth one makes you buy fifth one makes you gay like yeah, that's yeah. the rule and so fifth one it, gets you beaten so, with soap and a sock right it was so weird though because it was just like this is written contemporaneously right like this isn't someone looking back and trying to put modern day sex mores onto this right, time right, period right, like right. this somebody that was there was like oh yeah we were having all sorts of gay sex so you know? that's my point yeah that's where i was gonna go at this time so the reality is guys have been sucking each other off since the beginning of time correct and, and it's always been a, a a part of sexuality let's all get over it move the fuck on Right. Get sucked off by grandpa, any consenting adult you want to get sucked off by as long as they're correct. consenting, as long as they're an adult. Yes. And uh stop trying to jump through all these fucking hoops in your head, 1950s weirdos. Yeah, and you, your grandpa only decided gay was bad when he no longer had to f- use it as a fallback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So there is another podcaster. I won't say who they are. But their working theory is that most people's grandmas were lesbians. <laughs> and I think that that's probably true. I think there is a disproportionate amount of gra- today's grandmas who were lesbians. But could would explain be out. the hair. Yeah. <laughs> because think about how much like old literature, like old, I'm sure like old, like Jane Eyre kind of stuff, where it's like yeah. the subtext is lesbian. And it, right it's like yeah. well, everybody's grandma was a lesbian you just couldn't be though you, you couldn't right. be you had to get married because it was a business arrangement and you had yeah, to have that was kids. the business model yeah and because you as a woman you couldn't own land you couldn't do this you couldn't yeah. do that etc cetera, etc cetera. so you just you had to do that to survive whether regardless of who you actually were attracted to or who you actually love i would i think there's some truth to that and there's nothing more gay and me and tom are here for it we're waving our pride flags there's no no shame here there's nothing more gay than the u.s military (laughs) that's what that book is telling you yeah i mean really it is like these are the tough guys that won the war but not above like yeah 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 so that that eradicates the the especially in the 50s the effeminate stereotype that all gay men are effeminate and weak and right. the term would have been you sissy and it's like well you storm normandy beach and you got your dick sucked by your buddy you're right you could be gay and a war hero uh yes you just get the fuck over it but apparently uh something wrong with the brains of many americans so sad but true all right well there i don't think there's any uh unusual amount of gay sex in the cheap detective what there is though is prototypical like airplane comes out i think in 80 is that right so this comes out correct two years before you this i i feel like this inspired yes yes yeah this what this is is this is 
Air, airplane is this movie on speed. Yes. That's what it is. Yeah. It's it because there are quick gags. There's wordplay and there's sight gags mm-hmm. and there's absurdity and stuff that that feels tonally consistent with what airplane would do. And it's coming pretty quick, but airplane's just coked up. It's just a coked up version. It's just more of it. And everything's a gag. Everything on screen, everything, every line, everything is everything's so jam-packed full of jokes. So there's a design element, an interior design called horror vacui, which means uh, uh, fear of empty spaces. <laughs> and, mm. and so, like, if you ever see like like old people's houses where there's just like there's hummels and there's house plants and it's just cram packed with stuff, right? Yeah, like that's horror vacui. Uh, airplane is comedy vacui, right? Like, there's there there's no point where there's not a joke being told. Sometimes there's two or even three jokes being told because yeah. there's a verbal joke, there's a there's a physical joke, and then there's something small going on in the background yep. or a wordplay or a funny sign. Yep. Like and but like watching Cheap Detective, the more I watched it, the more I was just like, this I actually looked up the year because I was like, is this them trying to be like airplane and i was like oh i think yes the zucker brothers watched this and we're like let's kick it up a notch yeah we can do what what the chief detective did for bogart we can do it for airplane 76 or airport 76 or whatever yeah. the hell that movie was called the, the disaster films that were really popular yeah. at the time and um and i think when the, this movie when it, it vacillates between being people might kill me for this it vacillates between being as good as airplane, um, if not a little smarter at times than airplane. And at its worst, it feels like space balls. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. And right, right, is that is that really that far afield though? It feels like space balls written by Mel Brooks, who worked on your show of shows in the writer's room with Neil Simon. Right. right. Like that's right. They share not only a similar comedic sensibility, they sh- share a similar career path and comedic pedigree. So like, that's not a crazy place to land at all that it's similar to space, that it feels similar to space balls. Do you know the legacy of this movie? Other than the fact that we, we have uh, posited that it may have helped inspire or at least was a, a stepping stone towards airplane. Do you know the real legacy of this movie? I do not. Do you know who Ed Mintz is? No. Ed Mintz was a guy who went to the movies and he saw this movie and he hated it so badly that he created an entire marketing firm. And that marketing firm is known as CinemaScore. Because <laughs> of this movie? <laughs> yes. Why this is he, the like, movie. This one movie. Created CinemaScore, which is used to this not, day. I even get why someone might not like this movie, but like, I they can't imagine having like yes. have a hatred for it. He hated it so I, bad, he felt so swindled by it. He was like, I want to create, there needs to be a business that just tells people, don't fucking go see these movies. Or, and do, I don't or go think, see them. I don't think this would get a bad cinema score. Not bad enough to keep them away. I don't think so. And the Rotten Tomatoes yeah. score is bizarre to me, the 50%. And you, you know who else hated it? Roger Ebert hated this movie and tore it to shreds. That's, 
One of his review, one of his, he he said that the Peter Falk Bogart impression uh, was tired, tiresome. It was played out. I'm thinking, how many fucking times does this guy do this? The only thing I can think is there was a lot of Bogart impersonations in the pop culture ephemera at this point mm. in time, right? Like, you know, so you, ha- I mean, you you just saw a lot of it. And McGruff, so the crime maybe, dog being probably the most, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, maybe not Peter Falk specifically, but like, but you did see a lot. And like, you know, you had played again, Sam, which could have easily been on this list, but probably wasn't picked because of Woody Allen, which I get. Before we we move on from Woody Allen, a, another another interesting from a comedic sensibility standpoint, also a writer for Sid Caesar, not not your show of shows, but the Sid Caesar, I think, comedy hour, which came yeah. shortly after your show of shows. So it's like he's also at least I don't maybe it was your show of shows, but uh, but but anyway, but he also worked in that same comedy system that Sid Caesar created which i just find fascinating that so well, many great people came out of that writer's room well that goes to my question i was going to ask you this is obviously a skewering of bogart and yeah that was probably in vogue and now that you say that i do remember that because that even carried over into the 80s bogart was constantly yeah. being skewered i mean really like we could go back to what i said about bugs bunny almost immediately he was he was parodied uh yeah so yeah, the, the Bogart parodies existed forever and ever. So yeah, you're you're right about that. I think I this is loving that. though. Like they, they clearly have a love for the genre. Like sure. they're not just being shitty for the sake of it. Is this a clever movie? I think so. I thought so. I I thought it. You know. I I mean, I don't. You didn't get a lot of feature length films doubling down on a genre parody like this. I mean, I can't think of one that predates it. I'm sure it must exist. Right? Yeah. But yeah. nothing's jumping out at me. Um, so, I mean, no, I think this is a clever, clever film with a lot of solid laughs. And they, they you know, they know what makes the, that, that particular genre silly, but they also love it. You know, I, I like I said, this is, to, for me, the second best film on the list. I love Peter Falk. I love him and everything sure. he's ever been. And I know you're a big Columbo fan and yeah. I grew up with Columbo on and around and it's still on and it's still streaming and it's still a reasonably popular show for what it is. And I guess mm-hmm. you could say that Columbo is a dialed down Bogart kind of ish impression, the trench coat and the, the whole thing. And it's a yeah. little bit of what he's doing here. It's a little Sam Spade. It's a little Bogart, but that shows it's also a little Charlie um, Chan. Yeah, believe, you know, oddly enough, like yeah. not not from a racial standpoint, yeah. but this the notion of people. Charlie Chan solves these mysteries because people underestimate him. Bingo. because They think they're better than he is. Yes. And that he and he weaponizes that at, yeah. at, at Charlie at Charlie Chan's best. That's what that character does. He, yes. He weaponizes your underestimation of him. Yeah. And uses it to catch you, which is what Columbo does. Yeah. A hundred percent. Here, I think that he is, this is maybe the most absurd I've ever seen him at times. With the <laughs> toilet and the woman at the door and the woman in the shower and the woman here. And, and is it this person, that person, this person? And I think that this is the most, he's got all, he's got, he doesn't have one failed relationship with a tragic backstory or one lovelorn secretary. Yeah. He's got every single female trope you could possibly have. 
where all of these different women, <laughs> you know, they all have some kind of history together that's broken his heart and left him the cynical drunk detective and whatever. And his, yeah. you know, he's got all of it. He's got the partner shit. He's got every, they cram this thing full of every stereotype of trope for sure. And at a certain point, all of those things just start flooding the screen of his apartment slash office. And he's having to deal with all of them at the same time. And he is so deft at being able to deal with it. And again, it's the same thing that made him a standout in, in murder by death is he's so fucking good. Cause he's got, he does the cockeyed thing. He let he lets the glass eye go. He, he intentionally makes himself look a little silly, but he says absolute absurd bullshit. That also is not that far removed from the kind of dialogue that's in those film noir movies. Yeah. And he, he adds just enough to bring out the ridiculousness of it in, in, in his performance. And he says it as straight as possible sometimes. And when he does that, yeah. this movie is, tr is truly funny. At times, I think, uproariously funny. And I think Roger Ebert is wrong. And I think that the critics were wrong. And I understand at the time, this, this probably did feel like old hat. It probably did feel like an, uh, an old gag. Yeah, we get it. Film noir. It's silly. It's goofy. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, if you really look at it outside of its own context, it's really kind of, it's, it's so stylistic. It's, it's absurd. And we get it. And we all understand. But I think that there was also, in this generation of film critic, and Ebert would have been a fairly young film critic, compared to, like, Vincent Canby or whoever, but... Sure, yeah. Um, I think that there was also, at this time, like, the golden age of Hollywood and these sort of films, a lot of them were considered truly untouchable. That, yeah. you know, they don't... Like, the whole concept, the whole thing that you still see on film Twitter to this day of, they don't make them like they used to. People have been saying that since the fucking 50s. They've been... Yeah. <laughs> probably since the 40s. They don't make them yeah. like they used to. It's like, what do you mean? They, yeah, because they use sound now. Well, the, film, right. the pictures are in color now. And I guarantee you when movies were in the color, somebody said, well, uh, something's being lost here due to the it black and white. It hurts my eyes. hurts my eyes. So people who love movies always love to bitch about movies. Nobody hates movies more than people who love movies. Yeah. And I think that now, 30, 40 years removed from this film, I think it's really good. And it's almost my number one. I think it's... I, the number one, I think, is going to be obvious probably for both of us, but we'll get there. And it's a pretty damn close race between this and the, and the number one. I, I would agree, as long as we have the same number one. Yes. <laughs> so for me, this is my number two. I give it a 7.5 out of 10. I really like this movie. I'd go so far as to say, of everything on our list, you probably haven't seen a bunch of these if you're listening, unless you're Heather. This is the one you should seek out. Yeah, like this is the one you're probably... This is the best of the ones you probably haven't already seen. Bingo. What would you give yeah. it out of 10, Tom? Uh, I, yeah, I think seven and a half, eight. I think that's, yeah. a, that's a real good place to land. Like it's, you know, it does show a little bit of its age in terms of its pacing and not all the jokes land. Um, but, uh, but this is really strong. This is real. This is a, this is a really good movie and it dials back, you know, now with 30% less racism. And so that <laughs> helps. And, uh, <laughs> Probably, honestly, so, probably like 70% less racism for being For honest. sure, yeah. Because like, um, so yeah, Murder by I, Death I, is real fucking racist. Real racist, yeah. yeah. Um, 
I'm honestly surprised we didn't get more racism than we did in, yes. on this list, given the age that of most of these films. But, and uh, the movies uh, they're parodying, or the stories they're parodying, which were loaded right. with racism. I know, it's funny. Whenever you're watching an old movie, and like some people be like, I don't like old movies because there's no representation in them. And I'm like, sometimes like that's for the best, right? Like yes. When, I see a, when yes. I'm watching a movie from the 30s and a black guy comes on screen, I'm just like, oh, this is not going to end You start well. squirming. Like, yeah, you do. I'm glad like, that oh, guy fuck. got paid. Yeah. yeah, like I'm sure he needed the work, and I'm glad he got paid. But I'm not comfortable with what they're about to ask him to do. You know who? Yeah, <laughs> and you know who gets honestly. This is I'm not even trying to be silly. You know who gets the worst of it is black women. Yeah, if you see a black woman show up on a screen in a movie from classic Hollywood, I literally I know I know she's going to be a shrieking mammy or something. Right, and it's it is be bad. awful. If you want an example yeah. of it, Holiday Inn. Yeah, where her name is just yeah. Mammy yeah and you're like holy shit and then there's full-on blackface yeah in holiday inn uh for lincoln's birthday yeah and you're like oh yeah, my it's, god i never saw holiday inn g- g- until like l- like last christmas two christmases ago and, and like, i was just like oh shit. It's a cl-. and i was like i, wa- I started watching it, i'm just like why do people still rave about this movie? <laughs> like, what is going on? Yeah, it's it's rough, man. It's rough. Yep. All right, well, moving on to a movie again. So in 1978, we're saying, oh, making fun of film noir is so fucking tired. But Steve Martin, arguably at the height of his powers, comes along in 1982, does pretty much the exact same thing, and people yeah. fucking raved about it. What difference does three or four years make? We're about to find out. Of course, we're talking about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which currently has a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. Steve Martin, the funniest comedian who ever lived, is Rigby Reardon in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. No criminal is too tough for him. No pain is too great. No joke too disgusting when Steve Martin finds out why Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. I'll buy two tickets. This film was directed by Carl Reiner, who I think's best movie is Summer School. It was written (laughs) by Carl Reiner uh, and Steve Martin. It was released May 21st, 1982, on a budget of $9 million. It made $18 million, so it wasn't a big hit, but it was uh, critically lauded at the time. Um. Shout out to the editor. The editor here is uh, Bud Molin, I think is his name. And he inserts Martin into the best they can, especially for 1982, almost Forrest Gump style into 19 different noir films, some of which are classic noir film scenes that if you're familiar with that age of Hollywood, you would easily recognize. And there's some lesser known movies in there as well. They they didn't just... Do it. So essentially, it's it's Martin in the 1982 or 1981, whenever they filmed the movie, doing a performance, and they've strung a narrative together, including dialogue, and a lot of it is uh, uh, Mad Lib style almost. By yeah, like it, it's MST3K adjacent, right? Like yes, the way but he's he, in the movie. He interacts. Yes. Yeah. Like he's he's following this mystery, and his suspects end up being characters from the classic age of film noir in Hollywood. And so they edit these scenes in a way that makes it look like 
they're actually characters in the movie and he's interacting with them. And I think yes. which really I limits your you, dialogue and your punchlines because you almost have to do it backwards. You almost have to think about oh shit. Right. Yeah. What setups am I going to use and then write the punchlines from there? Which is why I, I consider it MST3K adjacent, right? Like yeah. you ha- you're using the existing dialogue as a starting point for for the gags and and it really works. And I think part of the reason that it got better received by the critics when they you know maybe thought Chief Detective was being mean was precisely because they used this classic one. Ah, uh, so this so, this comes off really more like a love letter to noir. Right. It's, it's right. more of an homage than than what they felt like Chief Detective was maybe just a cheap shot, you know. Yeah, and, right, right, uh, right. Which I don't think Chief Detective was a cheap shot, but I don't I think care. This, Here's the other it, thing, Tom. I don't give a fuck if it is a cheap shot. Who the fuck is Humphrey Bogart not to take the piss out of him? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think he'd be the first to laugh at it, to be honest. Like, if you made he, instant mashed potatoes, Tom, on your stovetop, heaped it up into a big old bowl, dropped that bowl into shag carpet, scooped up them instant mashed potatoes out of your shag carpet, carpet fiber and all, and stuck it in a burlap sack, that's Humphrey Bogart. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I mean, is the man looks like bad, lumpy, hairy, ugly, dirty, rotten mashed potatoes a, in a fucking burlap sack. He's a weird looking dude, but he made it work. <laughs> he's a weird looking dude. He's a weird talking dude. And I don't get the fucking hype. Fuck Humphrey Bogart. Oh, I, he, he's, he's got some great movies. I love Humphrey Bogart. I didn't say he didn't have great movies. Dude. I said, fuck yeah. the man personally. <laughs> how do you seem like a good guy i say fuck bad, him but <laughs> is but, the uh, movie any more than what we just said though is it any more than is, an editing gimmick oh i th- i think so like it's it's i mean that certainly is what people remember from it, it but i think it's i think it's a funny movie i laughed a lot at this movie and i brought you a puppy like that's <laughs> i don't know that line has always cracked me up and then when he leaves and he gives the the there's the two secretaries and he gives the the hot one the the puppy and he gives the other one the the poopy picked up yes right <laughs> like like that like uh, you know but again i watched this movie when it came out i didn't see it in theaters but when it was all over cable and so i've seen it a bunch i watched it again yesterday so it's top of mind but uh uh but yeah i i i think this is a really funny movie that has has aged pretty well uh Probably the really only cringeworthy part is his affinity for for grabbing Rachel Ward's breasts when she's passed out. Although yes. at least it's a gag that that pays off at the end yes. to some degree. What are you doing? Adjusting your breasts. You fainted and they shifted all out of whack. There. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I kept wanting to think she was uh, Kelly LeBrock. Um, he goes, the, the line that got the biggest laugh out of me of all of these movies, he goes, I hadn't seen a body like that since the case of the girl with the big tits. The, mur- the murdered girl with big tits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there's not a lot of like blue humor in this movie, really. There's a, but yeah. when it's peppered in, it's and with Martin, Steve Martin, he's so he has a sensibility of like wholesomeness to him. So when he says something and then it goes blue or a little dirty, it's really funny. Right. 
And that's the same thing he does in, uh, if you've ever seen Only Murders in the Building, Only Murders in the Building. It's a lot of the same comic sensibility of this movie. It's just yeah, modernized, basically. And uh, that's when I think he's at his funniest in that show, too, is he'll, he'll, he, 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 when his sporadic use of the F word is really funny. And then he'll, he'll just yeah. be saying something very, I don't even know the right way to put it, very Steve Martin S, very wholesome S. When you and I reviewed The Jerk, it was very similar, right? He would just yeah. say something. He, there's, there is a, um, yeah, just a, a cleanness to him that he knows yeah. how to work against in a way to, to get the most out of being dirty. And for a comic who kind of became famous for being so big, you know, the wild and crazy guy and excuse yeah. me. And yeah. like he can really undersell a joke to yes. make it funnier, like and which is uh, a remarkable amount of restraint, which is honestly like right. Like we were complaining about Gene Wilder's inability to do yes. that if left to his own devices. And, and that's Steve what makes Martin. these spoofs work, though. And parody movies work yeah. is you, 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 you can't be in on the joke. If you're in on the joke, right. it's not fucking funny. Right. You, you have to be serious. You have to be, you yeah. have to underplay it because the movie, everything around you is overplaying. The script right. is overplaying it. You have to underplay it, which is why Leslie Nielsen was so good in that first airplane movie and why everybody, yeah. and, and uh, 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 what's his face? Oh my God. Biography. Uh, uh, dude in the front of the oh, plane. Oh yeah. Peter Graves. Peter Graves. Yeah. Why Peter Graves is so good. Why? Why everybody remembers Peter Graves' lines and Leslie Nielsen's lines in those movies yeah. isn't just because they got the best lines, but they had the best lines because they had the best delivery because they played it flat. When you, when you, right. when you say, you ever seen a grown man naked? He says that as serious as you possibly could, right? You ever been in yeah. a Turkish prison? Like He says it straight, and that's totally. what makes it like, funny. People really lose sight of how important a line reading can be. Yes. And here's a classic example. What's what's the line you remember most from Gone with the Wind? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Yeah. Right. And most people, when they when they remember that line, they remember it like this. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. There's no pause in that line. Mm. If you if you watch the movie, he's she's like, where will I go? What will I do? And he goes, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Like he's like it and it's like people want to pause and like so the impact is yes. I don't give a damn and have and have that be a real punch, right? But what makes that line so great is how dis utterly dismissive mm. he is of her, mm. right? Like he's not trying to hurt her. Like if you say I don't give a damn, but you say it like that, if yes. you say frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, guess what? You do give you a damn. Yeah, right. You do give a damn. He doesn't yep. give a damn because he's like, frankly, my dear, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Like right. whatever, you go, like you know. Yeah, and it's, and it's just su such a subtle distinction, and uh, I don't know. I just, I that kind of stuff fascinates me. How old but were this you? This is a good movie. How old were you no, in 1982? I so this movie. What when did this movie come out? What time of the year is this? A summer movie? I have no idea. Uh, uh, I said that, but yeah, May, spring. May, so I would have been eleven when this movie came. Eleven thousand? <laughs> no, just eleven. Okay, <laughs> so you're eleven years old. Do you remember at the time, around about this time, Warner Brothers started re-releasing Looney Tunes commercials, but they would put a new title on them, and so they would cut up old Looney Tunes cartoons 
Yeah, and, and they'd create a framework. And, yes, and correct. And it'd be like uh, Bugs Bunny's Fantasy Island. Yes, and, yeah. bingo. Mm-hmm. Do you remember those? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, obviously you do because you just said you did. So, uh, did you ever go <laughs> to the theater? Did you ever go to the theater and see those movies? No, I never saw one in the theater. I they were just always they were like on TV. Yeah, is when I they saw were them. theatrically released. Yeah, critics hated them at the time because. They were essentially this, where they would edit gags from different Bugs Bunny cards. They created a brand new framework, like you said, usually in right. much worse animation. Right. And they would take classic Looney Tunes cartoons and they would basically like chop and screw them up right. and make a whole new kind of a plot out of them. And that's essentially what they've done here with new art films. What mm-hmm. I think is so interesting is that was seen as being, uh, basically a cash grab and very cynical on behalf of Warner brothers when it was done with bugs bunny. But when Reiner and Martin do it here, it's seen by critics at the time as like this work of creative genius. And Oh, what a, I don't, I don't remember those bugs bunny movies, them interacting with them in the same way. It was more like there'd be a framework and then they'd set it up and then they'd throw it to like four consecutive minutes of a pre-existing short where this is them like actually engaging with, but I think it was like Quackbusters or uh, one of them, the new cartoon actually engaged with the old one because they were actually chopping the old cartoons up. Okay, I never saw that one. Yeah. The one I saw, the ones I remember were more just like... A highlight were, reel almost, basically. Yeah, they were yeah. just an excuse to do greatest hits. Kind yeah, of. yeah. Yep. Some yeah. of the later ones in that series, because they did a bunch of them, I think maybe a little bit... Actually, it's around about this time. It's early 80s. They did yeah. that. But but you okay. you might have missed those because you were just catching it on TV or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that could very well be. And it just it just raised the question to me of why are some things acceptable? Why is this acceptable? But uh, the cheap detective was derided. Now you and I have come to the conclusion that why we like some of these and don't like some of the other ones is because the difference in Wilder's performance and Martin's performance, or Wilder's performance mm-hmm. and Falk's performance. And we've pretty well ha- covered that. But what else, is, what else is it about these movies that the critics are just sort of like, because now that we're so far removed from all of them, we can lump them together in a subgenre and right. basically go, these are all basically I, the same fucking movie <laughs> or variations I, of the yeah. same movie. I think it's just some things hit at a certain time. Sometimes you mm. catch the, the popular zeitgeist and you can really ride that wave. And other times, you know, you just, you know, like look at uh, Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe came out within a, you know a month of each other. right right and failsafe is a great movie but the plot was so similar to dr strange love that people thought it they couldn't not see it through the prism of dr strange love and they laughed at it you know yeah um and so there's sometimes there's just intangible things th- you know uh what uh uh the china center right like yeah. it came out like the week before three mile island happened if that hadn't happened would that movie have been a hit doubtful it's kind of an eat your vegetables experience about something that felt would have felt very academic, but because mm. three mile Island happened all of a sudden it had a, a cachet that it wouldn't have had normally. So sometimes it's just luck of the draw, you know, does this movie dead men don't wear plaid have any legacy? I don't know that it does sadly, like as much as I enjoy it, I just don't think that it's movie people go to. Why? So I think there's a couple reasons. Uh, one, it's in black and white. Mm. <laughs> it and and you know, 
present day doesn't really like black and white movies. Um, I think that's probably also why it, maybe it's box office wasn't stronger. Also, Steve Martin was coming off pennies from heaven, which people thought was weird. And then he turned around and even though this is a comedy, it's a weird comedy. Yeah. Um, uh, it's an homage to, uh, what is sadly a, a pretty niche genre yeah for the average film goer at this point and then finally steve martin has made infinitely funnier movies and so when you when you list the great steve martin movies i think this is second tier as much as i enjoy it like i I definitely think it's you know it's not the jerk you know um and so uh is it better or worse than father of the bride um Well, that's a tough call. Father of Brides, very, it's a very trying to do something very different, but it does it very well. Better know? or worse than um, Cheaper by the Dozen? Oh, better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, let me, let's, the recipe for this movie is you take a, at the time in 1982, a modern hot comedian, comedy actor. Yeah. Uh, you take that person, you, remix 19 uh, films from a bygone genre from film history some 30 years previous 30 40 years previous and uh you create a new narrative out of those two different places and you do it in an homage or spoofy sort of way so the task i want to give you is what's a bygone genre from 30 years ago, which would put us in the 90s. I'm going to say that genre is the erotic thriller. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, what's the yeah. fucking one with Ray Liotta? Uh, Disturbing Neighbor, or <laughs> whatever it's called. What's that one called where he's like a cop or something? Uh, oh, uh, Mike, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Michael Keaton did one where he was Pacific, like... But Pacific Heights. Pacific Heights. One. But that's what wasn't really erotic, though. And I, when you say erotic, I think like Basic Instinct and well, those disclosure. are the most erotic ones. Yeah, Indecent yeah. Proposal. Those are the most erotic ones. Fatal Attraction. Yeah. But the 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 the, the thriller that usually had a cup a married couple and a strange guy that would right. come in their life and wreak havoc, right? And yeah. Um, and there's 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 some kind of subtext there. It's usually quasi sexual where he hits on the wife or he's looks at the yeah. wife or he's got a peeping hole or he's Gary Busey who builds a secret cubby inside the attic of the house. And you ever seen Hyder in the house? <laughs> Gary Busey. No, I have not. <laughs> okay. Um, um, so let's take that. Let's take the, the thriller with erotic components. That's what we'll say. Okay. And uh, the 90s thriller, and I want you to take a modern comedian or comic actor, and they, we're going to chop up and remix the footage of those 90s movies, and you got to put them in it, and, and you got to sell it as, you know, dead men don't answer the classifieds or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So you want a present-day comedian, comedic actor. That yeah, male or female. You could, you, could genre, you could gender okay. flip it. Hmm. I could see uh, Bill Hader. Oh yeah, yes, right, yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh oh man i'm blanking on her name good place uh Kristen bell yeah Kristen bell yes yes that's another you know? good one yeah i think Kristen. You know? yeah i think Kristen bell could probably do it i think that yeah. you could probably I mean, she kind of someone... is right in that net that netflix show the girl across the street in the window, yes blah, i guess blah, that's blah. Like, right i guess that's right yeah, that yeah they already did it a version of that yeah yeah yeah. I uh b- before we move on I th- I'd like to point out too car- directed by Carl Reiner who yeah. also was in the writers room. That's correct. With Sid Caesar. Sid Caesar writer yep. room. Yeah. And so I and, and also when you talk about comedic sensibilities landing in the same place again going back to uh to to Woody Allen the, in, in the same general time frame he does something similar with his film Zelig where he takes yes old documentary footage and weaves it into create a narrative which is a, again a fascinating movie that predates all the things that we knew but uh when, when but you I, saw forrest saw gump movie when you saw forrest gump in 1994 did you go this is just zelig yeah i did i was just like this we've <laughs> this is zelig like we've, yeah. we've seen this yeah. yeah all right well dead men don't wear plaid doesn't have gay sex in it unfortunately uh, I give this one a seven out of 10. It's my number three for the week. Uh, it's right in the middle. I, I think this is another one that runs out of gas. I think that's pretty consistent with all of these movies, barring maybe the one that's the obvious number one for me and probably the number one for you. I think they all kind of run out of gas a little bit. And I think that, I think that most of these movies would be better served if they were at most about an hour or hour 15, and that's not feature length. Yeah. So, you know. But I think, I guess you could probably get away with like an hour 15-ish. I think that's the minimum, I think, isn't it? What's the minimum feature yeah. length? I don't know. Dumbo, I think, is like 69 minutes. It's really yeah. short. So I think you, but, you'd, but so, I just, they all tend to go a little too long. And I think it just has the, nat- it's the nature of this kind of comedy, which is yeah. after you get it, you kind of get it. Sure. So we're going to disagree here. This oh, is no! my number one. What? This is my number one. Jesus! Yeah, wow. I love this movie. This is this is my number one. Yeah. So what are you gonna give it out of ten? I'd give this like eight. Like I think this is really solid. I think this is really funny. I what I is love, so strong about this movie? I give it a seven I out of ten. I love the that you I think love it's the way better it than everything else on this list that Heather gave us. I love the way it interweaves the other footage. Um, I just I think it does a great job, especially given the the limitations of the time yeah uh i like i think this this movie's a blast i think this movie's a lot of fun and is this because you're just basically a giant mark for steve martin though it could be like i'm not uh yeah it could very well be um but uh but yeah i i totally love this movie like i when i was watching them all i say i hadn't i probably haven't watched it in 10 years but i saved it to the end because i knew i'd probably like it the best yeah and uh and and yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I, yeah, you've got like it. millennial kids and Zoomer kids and whatnot. Do you? Did you make them watch any of these movies with you this time around? I did not. I did not. <laughs> and this is the, this is the only one that I even had my wife watch. She came in on the tail end of Sherlock Holmes, and she was just like, "This is awful." She's like, "I'll watch just about anything with you," but this. And I was like, "No." I was like, "You're not wrong. Like, this isn't. This is bad." Like, this is really not good. Well, a little known fact about enough. Tom's wife is that she is a Zoomer. Tom went way young this time. 
But, That's why uh, she's no, so much into my... this Peloton. She's 27 years yeah. old. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, she'll love that you think she's 27. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like this is my favorite out of all these movies. This is the one that I would watch again. So your wife this walked into Detective. the room during uh, Sherlock Holmes' Sherlock smarter Holmes. brother and was like, this is awful. I'm not watching any of these movies with you and walked out. No, I mean th- this. That was the f- this. That was the fourth of the movies that I watched. I see. And so the I other see. ones I I watched at work, and um, and so she walked in as I was watching this uh, that one, and she was just like, "This is horrendous. I don't know what they're doing, <laughs> but please make it stop." Yeah, yeah it's real so, bad. It's real bad. It's so yeah. loud. You're just yeah. like, "Fuck, shut up!" It's very loud. Did she yeah. end up watching uh, uh, "Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid" with you, or you just were alone like a creep in your basement? No, she ended up watching okay. that with me. What did she think of that? And one? Did she I, like she, it? She was fine. I think you know, like it. I don't think she'd ever watch it on her own, but I think she was like reasonably entertained. Yeah, well, how could she watch it on her own? She's you know, she just got her driver's license, Tom. <laughs> she's not old enough to see it. Yeah, she's not. She's, yeah, she wasn't old enough to see it. Okay, uh, moving on to our last one, which I thought for sure was going to be your number one, and almost got supplanted by the cheap detective by me. If that had happened, that would have been the biggest upset, uh, maybe in this show's history. But it didn't happen, yeah. so there's no more suspense. Let's get to it. Let's get to 1985's Clue, which currently has only a 68 percent. On Rotten Tomatoes. Was it Professor Plum, Mrs. White, Mr. Green, Mrs. Peacock, Miss Scarlet, or Colonel Mustard? I'm only a dinner guest. With a knife, a gun, a pipe, a candlestick, or a rope. In the hall, lounge, dining room, kitchen, library, or the study. And to make a long story short, too late. Or did the butler do it? We've got to find out. Clue. It's a comedy with three different endings. Who done it depends on where you see it. Rated PG. Starts Friday, December 13th at a theater near you. This was directed by Jonathan Lynn. The screenplay by Jonathan Lynn. A story by murderer John Landis, Jonathan Lynn, and Anthony Perkins, of all people. Uh, he Perkins was brought in to do some rewrites on it. It's based on the board game Clue, and maybe in the part of the world you're from, Cluedo. It's a triumph return <laughs> of Christopher Lloyd, last seen in Adam's Family. It's a triumph return of Howard Hesman, last seen in Flight of the Navigator. Okay, so the nature of this show is the dirty secret of this show, binge movies is that it is every once in a while amongst the profanity, vulgarity, absurdity, the strangeness of it all, there's a little bit of education. I feel like when you come on the show, that education quotient goes up and <laughs> the vulgarity stays about the same. The strangeness, okay, I was like, the, I'm a cusser. The stranger, strangeness comes down because you're a fairly normal guy. Um, but the educational piece of this is what we learn now through talking about four other versions of this is that by the time this comes out in 1985, this is the upteenth iteration of this kind of movie. Yeah, there've been a lot. So famously, this movie flopped. It became a cult classic because HBO aired it on heavy, heavy rotation. We've covered yeah. four other versions of this. There are many more that we didn't cover that Heather could have put on this list from the same time period. I don't think it's so much that, well, because people say they had four different endings and that confused the marketplace because you didn't know which ending you were going to get and there were 
good endings and bad endings. And if you got a bad ending, then people came out and they didn't like the movie and they got a bad word of mouth. I don't think it's all that complicated. I think what really likely happened, and I will kick it over to you because you were 14 at the time or 15 when this movie came out, is I think that the movie came, came out too late. That, that, that This had been a trend of parody movies and mystery spoofs. And quite frankly, a lot of them are not good. <laughs> yeah. They're not good. I, so And then this, I here this one comes. I don't think there was a market for it. I think people were fucking burned out. I think there's I think that played a role. I think the it also plays a role is that it doesn't have a bankable star. Yeah. Like, you know, while this is a great cast, nobody runs to the theater to see the latest Martin Mull movie or whatever, you know, like it's just Did people like, run to the theater to see the latest Colleen Camp movie in nineteen eighty five? Yeah. No. And so like it didn't you know, so at this point, most comedies were pretty star driven, right? It's going to be Steve Martin or Bill Murray or, you know. And, well, do you and know, do you know the history of the Murphy. casting of this? Because there was a significant role that was recast to actually bring more star power into it. I, I, I don't remember. I did some reading on the history of it, but I'm not super up on it. Been a Wadsworth was not supposed to be Tim Curry. Tim Curry was a last minute replacement because they were like, there are no bankable stars in this movie. And at least he has a name yeah. that people know. Right. Right. It was originally supposed to be an unknown actor to the United States who had had oh, success right. overseas. Wadsworth was originally supposed to be Rowan Atkinson. Yeah. Which I think would have been better. Do you really? I like, like, honestly, like I, so I didn't see this movie until, until this list. I what? Never, Jesus. I didn't see it. I didn't see it when it came out. Like it came out, it got bad reviews. I was like, it's based in a board game. And then whenever it was on cable, I just kind of like, was like, whatever. And I remember, I think they screwed up with the marketing of this movie. Cause when they, when they did the different endings, I think the original idea was, they didn't want you to know and they just wanted people to start talking about it and say oh well colonel mustard did it and then have somebody go no they didn't yeah and then let people find out organically that there are different endings yes and because i remember when this movie came out like if you would look in the show times in the newspaper i don't know if you remember newspaper uh and it would actually list with different show times, which version you got. And they didn't obviously tell you who did the murder, but it would be like version A, version B, version C. And like, and you could then pick your show time. Which kind of so kills the bit. Are, it does. Yeah. Right. Like it, yeah. it, you know, and so, um, uh, and so, and I, and I do think that kind of confused people. I also say, I like, I don't, I get what they're going for. The problem I have with that though, is it makes it impossible for you to play along with the murder. Well, think about it. If we know that walking into the movie, then we really can't get too excited about guessing who done it. Because think about it, literally anybody could have done it, and anybody did do it. Three different people did do it, and that cuts the heart out of the tension of a mystery. Now, either Paramount should have showed all three endings as they did to critics, or better yet, simply strengthen the script and pick the best murder ending of all. I think it would have been better just to do all three endings because since you're right, it doesn't matter who did it. Then why do we only get one? Uh, person who did it. I thought it was kind of clever that the same facts mm -hmm. fit three different guilty parties, and so it would be fun to see all three. I'll bet that's what they do with a video cassette. They're going to have to throw all three innings in. What are you going to do? Buy three cassettes? Right? Like you can't solve the murder because 
you get this, this the exact same clues can solve the murder three different ways, right? So like it kind of robs you of the fun of trying to solve the murder mystery. Well, going back no to the ending solution. of the very racist uh, murder by death, that's Truman Capote's yeah. beef and why he did all the things that he did. He was like, at the end, he's like, this whole thing is because you, you, you leave information off the table that the audience or the reader doesn't have, you know, there's right. a whole other stuff. All the clues could go any particular way. It's written in a way where you can just make up whatever you want at the ending. And that's not an actual writing of a good mystery. Right. And so he's attacking right. all of these detectives and ostensibly their writers. And that's kind of the end joke of, or the end thesis of murder by death. And yet, yeah, it, right. it, the clue ends up kind of actually just being that, right? Right. And now on the flip side, nobody's going to clue to really solve the murder, right? Like that's, <laughs> you know, like that's not what you go to the movie for in fairness. Um, that being said, as someone who watched it with modern eyes and has no affinity for the movie, I did not think this was very funny at all. And I know that's a hot take. People love this movie. I didn't. I was really surprised at how little I laughed giving given the caliber yes. of this cast comedically. Um, uh, the ending really irritated me, not the multiple endings, but when all of a sudden Tim Curry like flips a switch and now he's this super manic guy, like that, he's never acted like that for the whole right, movie. Right, and then right. all of a sudden as he's explaining it, he's just like spinning out. And I'm just like, but that's never been your behavior type at any point in this movie, like, what are we doing? But I, um, yeah, it just like, like I said, I, I know people have a great love for this movie. It just did not work for me. Like this was number three on my list. The most problematic part of this movie that really stuck out to me this time. And I would say this historically, I haven't found this movie very funny either. I've dated people who, who this, this was their family's movie. This movie was, the the family got together and they watched this on heavy repeat and watched on vacations and this is just what you did. And there are people, I think because it was in such heavy rotation on cable and it did become a staple of the video store era and it was it, it eventually did very well, um, right? And is beloved today. It's a, it's a true cult classic um, for sure. And you know, people can quote every line and it just never worked on me in that way. I saw it. I saw it on cable. I saw it growing up. It was never like a, a staple of our household, but it was definitely, I was familiar with it. I watched it with adult eyes, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Didn't think it was funny. I watched it two or three times since with just about everyone I've ever dated. And they all thought it was funny and I didn't. Then I rewatched it this time and within its context of all the other movies that now I'm, I'm putting it back into, oh, it belongs with all these other films. It is, I think, much better than a lot of the other movies in this particular genre. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think it's, it's obviously more slapsticky than some of those other mm -hmm. movies. It's a little bit less of a parody, but it's kind of akin to that, but also kind of doing its own thing. The big yikes, the big problematic thing is the entire bit about Christopher Lloyd's character being a medical rapist. Yeah. That is like all these people have like wacky backgrounds and they've committed wacky crimes. They're like, well, what crime have you committed? And it's like, well, he, he did the thing that doctors are never supposed to do with their patients. 
And then come to find out, he's like, well, he's, well, his female patients are unconscious. He's having sex with them. That's yeah. not funny. <laughs> That's never. Yeah. I can't imagine in 1985 that was funny. Was it funny in 85 yeah. to, to, to I, rape? I think people just had a different sensibility. Like they were, it was just there, you know, and they're, it's probably one of those things where they have to come up with all these crimes and you're running out of crimes that don't really upset people. And that's where they landed, I suppose. <laughs> like, I think this I, movie I, this is my number one. I think the movie runs out of gas halfway through, just like so many of these other ones for me, where I'm like, this, yeah. this thing is fucking, whoa, we're now, we start spinning our wheels a little bit. I do agree. I think the mania, I know what they're going for. They're going for, oh shit, everything's sure. going crazy. And they're going for that zany tone. I think it goes on too long. I think the ending right. goes on. Oh, especially way then too when you got to watch, especially then when you watch the ending three more times. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I think the pacing of that is off. I think the pacing of that kind of thing was pretty much perfected by Harold Ramis with uh, Groundhog Day we're going to show you the yeah. same thing over and over again, but you're never really going to get tired of it unless we want you to feel tired of it. And right. that's the point. Um, I, I think it's, I don't think it's edited very well. I don't, I don't think it's a very well-made movie. If you really look at it, I don't think yeah. it's well-directed. I think what's, what is good about it is I think it's a good cast. And I think that they are, yes. they're doing the heavy They elevate lifting. the material. Yes. They, uh, this cast certainly elevates the material. Absolutely. And, but, uh, uh, my favorite bit in this entire movie that never fails to make me laugh is the singing telegram. Every <laughs> time that girl shows up and just is shot dead. <laughs> That's, she's she's just in the go-go's. That's the girl from the go-go's. Yes. Every time she's shot dead, I laugh. Every time. Yeah. Just that happy, chirpy song and dance and just blown off the porch. I yeah. think it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I've gone back and forth with this movie of like, okay, who do I think is actually the funniest person in the movie? And a lot of people would say it's Madeline Kahn because the, the flames, oh, the, the flames burning, the flames. People find that hilarious. I've never laughed that joke. I don't get why that's the line that clicked with people. I don't I, either. Like, I don't yeah. find it funny. This time round, the person I found consistently the most funny, who this blows my mind because I never would have previously have said this person, but it is Michael McKean as Mr. Green. Yeah, Michael McKean's great. I understand where you're coming from because your yeah. experience was very similar to the first experience I had, which is you look at the cast and it's like a murderer's row of funny people. And For they can, sure. and people can be over the top funny, people can be subtle funny, people who've done you know, a lot of those, uh, the, the parody documentaries, the, the Christopher Guest documentaries are in this, right. these, this movie. You've got Tim Curry. You know, just all these different comedic sensibilities. So this should be the funniest movie ever made. <laughs> like, this should be yeah. side-splitting. And it isn't really. I don't think that it is. I know maybe some people find it as. I don't think that it is. But when I've watched it subsequently, it's more, it's not laugh-out-loud funny, but there is a... A warmth, I don't even know how to describe it. There's something about the energy between the performers that has grown yeah. on me over time. And so since this is like the 10th time I've seen it, I, I think I, it's, it's charmed. It's charming to me more so mm -hmm. than it is funny. It, it's, 
it's probably a, a comfort food in a way, yeah. like a warm blanket, like yeah. especially once you spend a lot of time with this particular movie that it can take on that sort of life for you. Yeah. And so for the rest of these movies that I found either like, okay, it ran out of gas. Now I'm just in, they, they were endurance tests or yeah. they were excruciating experiences. Um, I found this one to be the, the least excruciating, although I do, I do think the ending does have pacing problems, but yeah, it's a real close, you know, I gave the cheap detective, I don't know what I get, like 7.5, I think. And I give this an 8 out of 10. Yeah, that's what you did. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah. pretty close for me. It's my number one, but on a different day, it could have been my number two, and Cheap Detective could have been number one. I get that. But yeah, for me, it's Deadman, Don't Wear Plaid, then Cheap Detective, then this. And what would you give this out of 10? In. Six. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> that's not good. Tob made the Martin pictures number one. I knew it had been had. I did more digging in the hound than heat and found out that the client he sponsored the episode was a member of the league. I was blinded with dollars. I lost all my sense. So I never put together that she was in cahoots with my old partner. By the time the thought crossed my mind, the plug was on the way. Turns out, Heather Sachs is a listener to pod for, kill for, and maybe even die for. You can find me on Twitter at Roger Kubert or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tom O'Keefe. You can find uh, my uh, the movie podcast I'm on, Real Spoilers, uh, wherever you get podcasts uh, on Facebook, facebook.com slash Real Spoilers. If you care about Peloton, you can listen to my wife yap on about it weekly on a show called The Clip Out, and you can find that at theclipout.com. Yeah. If you want to know what show Tom's hot young wife does that's very popular, <laughs> it's at the top of charts of sports and fitness all around the world, and you're on there as well. I am. Yeah. I you am. were like, if you want to hear my wife talk, but you're on there. If you want to hear I'm Tom be funny, really. go to that show. Yes. Yeah. If you want to hear Tom be cranky, Go to real spoilers. <laughs> I like to think I'm cranky and funny. If, but okay. <laughs> if you want to hear Tom talk about Rise of Gru, go to hell. Yes, precisely. <laughs> All right, Tom. I always have so much fun talking to you, man. Likewise. This is fun. Yep. I appreciate it. Thank you for doing this, Heather. I hope you enjoyed the madness that was us trying to talk about comedies. I think you might agree with me, Tom. The hardest movies to review are comedies because because they're pass fail like they either make you laugh or they, or they don't and yeah. and completely subjective so something that yeah someone out there listening to us might be like, well well goddamn i think the cheap detective is the or i think uh, uh murder by death is the funniest movie i've ever seen one i would say you're a racist and two you're I racist would yes say <laughs> um it's subjective i can't tell you that you're wrong yeah you know even more so than a normal I, film. But I can't but I but I can tell you enjoy your red baseball hat. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, until next time, binge on.